Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Uh, good morning. My name is Andy Diamond. I uh, get to be with you guys this morning and uh, bring the good news of God's word. I don't know if Trey, when he set out the schedule for the summer, looked at the passages of James that he just didn't want to preach on, and that's how he chose who the guest speakers are going to be. But we met, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago and, and talked about James, and I opened up James 4, and I saw... Uh, how I was going to come into a church where I've never worshipped before and talk about you guys being uh, double-minded adulterers. <laughs> and, and so uh, for some reason, yeah, for some reason, uh, I said, yes, I'd love to do that. And so here we are. Um, but I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. I've actually never been here for a church service. Um, I've known Trey since before Contrast was a thing. Um, we got to pray together about what this was going to look like, and I was excited to partner with uh, Contrast, and I've been here. I serve as the area director for Central Columbus Young Life. Um, so if you don't know what Young Life is, Young Life is an organization. It's a non-denominational outreach ministry for middle school, high school, and college kids. Um, so we say that we are about introducing adolescents to Jesus and helping them grow in their faith. I get to do that with middle schoolers in Upper Arlington, but I get to oversee our ministries in Arlington, Grandview, and at Ohio State and Capital Universities. So when, when uh, Contrast was coming to Grandview, we sat down and talked about what that could look like and how we could partner. And so y'all are very gracious with us, letting us use this space, and there's a number of familiar faces um, here this morning. So that's really fun. Um, but I'm excited to be with you guys this morning and talk about this passage of James. Um, just a little background on me. So I live in Upper Arlington with my family. I think there's a picture of, there's my family. Um, so I've got two little boys. Um, they are 10 and three. I chose this picture, not because it's the best picture of us, but because that's where they are right now without me, um, which is kind of a bummer. But uh, I leave for camp with um, like 500 middle school kids on Tuesday morning. So they're gonna go be at the lake um, and like kayak in the peace and tranquility of that. Um, and Lindsay and I and a couple other folks are gonna take a bus down to Virginia and not be there. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's my family. Uh, we live in Upper Arlington. Um, I, it was great to hear Hannah's testimony of growing up in the church, um, but, but some of the different challenges that can come with that. I did not grow up in the church, so I'm actually the only believer in my immediate or extended family, which is kind of crazy. Um, I came to faith through Young Life when I was in high school. Um, and just to give you like a sense of, of what that looked like for me, um, I'll share this with you and then we're going to take it somewhere. So when I grew up, I grew up in a pretty like, pretty sheltered, um, fairly affluent kind of area and family. Um, I didn't encounter a lot of um, just really any challenges in my life at all. Like it was, it was a lot of privilege. Um, and a lot of self-sufficiency, right? So in my family, uh, we placed a very high uh, sense of importance on um, just the, I guess, the appearance of success, right, and performance, um, a lot of high achievers. And so as I got older, like, there were a lot of things that I was just shielded from. Um, actually, this is, I think there's a picture of me to give you a sense. That's, that's me. Um, you can laugh. It's a ridiculous picture. It was the 1980s when people looked like that. 
Um, but that was, that was me. Um, there's a little like horse in the picture. I don't know if I chose that. But that was, I think, the first day of school at some point. And uh, anyway, that was me. So as you can imagine, um, little me, uh, just not a lot of things in my life that were hard or challenging, which was, I thought, great. The problem was, that's not the world, right, as you guys know. And so the community that I grew up in, um, it, uh, middle school was only seventh and eighth grade. So from kindergarten to sixth grade, I went to this little school in my neighborhood um, that was only my neighborhood. But literally, the middle school that I went to, the, the area um, in Worthington that goes there is divided by railroad tracks. And it's literally the good side and the bad side of the railroad tracks. It's like a cartoon. And so I went to middle school as a seventh grader for the first time and started to encounter kids from the other side of the tracks. And I learned that life was uh, not like just what I had experienced. And um, my friend group, as it started to expand, began to include people from different backgrounds than myself, which is a great thing. But for me, it was a new thing. And so as I began to uh, play football with and associate with and run around with some of these guys uh, who were coming from a different area than me, I fell in with a group of guys who were not the best dudes. And um, so my friend group kind of split, and it was very like divergent in um, activities and interests and what we did. The guys that I grew up with went one direction, and I started to hang out with some guys that were a little bit rougher and started to do things that were like kind of dumb for, at first, right? And then kind of dumb and kind of dangerous, and then kind of dumb and kind of dangerous and kind of illegal. And um, as I went through middle school, um, started to try things for the first time that I'd never been exposed to, um, by the time I got to high school, uh, you know, in the early 90s, we didn't really talk about, like, mental health in the same way that we do now, but I was certainly dealing with anxiety and depression. Um, I was self-treating that with substances, and, like, by my freshman year of high school, I was kind of a mess. My parents were divorced when I was in eighth grade, and I was just kind of a train wreck, and uh, a lot of that had to do with the friends that I had surrounded myself with. And fortunately, like the guys that I grew up with, that friend group was still intact. And um, one of their moms invited my mom to come to a Young Life fundraiser. And she heard about Young Life, decided to send me to camp. Um, I went to camp for the first time in my life, heard the good news that there was a God who loved me, who didn't need me to perform, um, and who did a lot to win me to himself. And so I gave my life to Christ in July of 1999. Um, yeah. So... Here's why I bring that up. Not only to give you a sense of kind of where I'm coming from, but also um, who we're friends with matters a lot, right? The people that we surround ourselves with help shape who we are as people. And oftentimes, if you know someone's friends before you know them, you can probably guess a lot of things that are true about that person as well. So I don't know a lot of you guys, but if you came up to me after the service and you said, oh, I actually know your name because I'm friends with and listed off some people that I do know, I might be able to make assumptions about who you are based on who they are. And those assumptions might not be true, right? But that's what often happens. And that happens because as we begin to associate ourselves with a particular group of people, often we assimilate to that group, right? So we start to hang out with people who are into certain activities. We start to do those things. Or because we do those things, then we meet that group of people and they become our friends. And eventually we start to identify with the things that they identify with. So whether that's uh, that we think we're really outdoorsy or whether that's that we are really into uh, basketball or we're gamers or we really um, you know, like to go to restaurants and we're foodies, right? Um, those things become a part of who we are. And so James has some things to say about that this week. 
Um, last week, Hannah got to talk to you about uh, maybe a more fun passage of scripture, right? About uh, how if we sow in peace, right? If, if things are sown in peace by those who make peace, um, then we'll have peace in our life. And there was a lot about wisdom, and that's great. But what if you don't, right? What if you're not a person who makes peace? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, we pray, and then we'll get into the word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you just for the opportunity to be together this morning. Um, thank you for the folks in this room and their hearts for you, um, and just the fact that they got up this morning and wanted to come here. Um, God, I pray that you would speak through this time. I pray that you'd speak through me, that it wouldn't be my words, but yours. Um, God, I pray that you would filter out anything that's not from you or is error, but God, by your Holy Spirit and his power, I pray that you'd bind to our heart the truth of your words. And God, I pray that we'd leave here uh, this morning just more in love with you than we came. Uh, and we do love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cool. So we're in James chapter 4 this morning. Um, so... James is a really fun book. It's actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. When I was uh, leading Young Life at Jonathan Alder High School back in the day, we used to have a Friday morning Bible study that we called the James Gang, and it was just a bunch of guys that come together and uh, read James and joke about how we weren't cowboys. Um, that's a, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> the James Gang, uh, no, I'll tell you later. Okay, um, anyway, we would, we would read James together, and if you know anything about high school kids, it, you, you have to offer something really compelling to get them out of bed in time to get to a Bible study at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Friday. And, uh, and so James um, is compelling, but also we would have breakfast, and uh, we'd hang out. And, and James is so good because it's just so um, applicable. Like, the book of James is almost like James looked at the teaching of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, and just wrote a commentary explaining, hey, all of these things that we heard Jesus say, here's really how that bears itself out in our life. And, and so we've come to a part of the book of James where we're talking about quarrels. And it's important to know, like, the intended audience of the book of James. So the intended audience of the book of James, and he says this right in the intro, is Christians who are scattered throughout the world, particularly Jewish Christians in the early church. And if you know anything about the Jewish faith, like, the Jewish, Jewish faith is really founded on the idea of rabbis interpreting God's word and interpreting the law. And so what would happen is like they would literally kind of just argue with each other about what a particular passage means. And so the idea that we see in the, in the early church of factions, right, where people are identifying with a particular teacher, the idea of quarrels over the law or what Jesus meant by something, this is very familiar for their cultural context. Um, but the early church fathers were like, that is not who we are going to be in the church. We are going to be a people who are marked by our unity and our love for each other and our, our united sense of purpose. And so we open this passage this morning, and, and James is talking about how not only do we quarrel about things inside the body, but also because of our own pride and our own covetousness, right, we then we start to argue and quarrel about things outside the body. We want things that we don't have for ourselves. And so he goes back with Sermon on the Mount language and talks about how uh, we murder each other in our hearts, right? We hate our brothers and sisters who have things that we don't. Um, he calls us adulterers because we lust for things in our heart that we don't have. Um, and so as Christians, we're not supposed to act like that, right? The idea of desiring what we don't have to the point of murder feels really foreign to who we are, and it should Right? And I think this is important because 
as believers today in a world where Christians are viewed as increasingly kind of irrelevant, increasingly out of touch, increasingly maybe bigoted, um, us living in stark contrast to the world around us is a really incredible way to actually communicate the love of God and make a difference. Right? Because if you go into a space um, and you look just like everybody else around you, um, you will have less opportunity to impact people by sharing your faith than if they look at your life and your life the way that you live, the way that you care about people, the way that you love the people around you, the integrity that you live your life with, if that begs the question, man, why is Maddie so different than everybody else that works here? Like, what is it about her that's unique? And then you maybe have an opportunity to do that thing that we all dream of, which is answer the question, hey, why are you the way you are? And you get to go, man, it's because I believe in a God who loves me and gave himself for me. And so everything that I do, I do out of an overflow of love for him. And don't you want to know somebody like that? You get to unpack all of that. And that's awesome. So wisdom, like we talked about last week, starts with fear of the Lord, is what the book of Proverbs says, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and wisdom that starts with fearing the Lord and starts with humility, it keeps God in the proper place in our life. It keeps God on the throne of our hearts and it creates peace in our life. But what pride does, what pride does is it says, I'm right and you're wrong, and I deserve what you have, I deserve what I want, and it takes God off the throne of our hearts and it replaces him with like a tiny little version of ourselves. It puts us on the throne of our heart in the place of God, and it elevates us into a position that we, quite frankly, don't deserve, Right? But what it says is that everything that we feel entitled to, we should have and we should want. And guys, when we don't have those things that we want, what happens? Well, then we begin to feel jealous of the people around us. We begin to feel angry at the people around us for having things that we don't have. Um, and James says that, that God is jealous of our heart. God desires that throne. God did a lot to win that throne of our heart. And so he wants to be there for ourselves. But culture says that pride is actually a good thing, right? Culture says that we define our own truth, that we're masters of our own world, that we belong on the throne of our hearts because ultimately we should be looking out for number one, right? And so this is where James begins to unpack the idea of friendship with the world. And it feels like kind of uncomfortable because there are aspects of the world that aren't inherently bad, right? And we understand that everything has the capacity to become bad, like even good stuff in our life can become objects of worship. But there are some things in the world that actually are pretty attractive. But James says, starting in verse 4, that friendship with the world is bad. So chapter, verse 4, says, Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? Whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself an enemy of God. And that's really harsh language, right? Because it seems like we ought to be able to be kind of friends with some of these things over here without becoming instantly an enemy of God. You know, if I go, you know, see a couple movies and spend my money the way I want to spend my money because I've worked really hard this week, you know, or if I want to go out to the bars with my friends a couple times a week because, you know, that's, they're the people that I hang out with, or if I, you know, decide that I want to date who I want to date, like all of these little decisions that we make, we go, well, that shouldn't mean that I'm necessarily enemies with God, Right? But the reality is that what begins to happen is exactly what I said earlier, where the decisions that we start to make and the people that we begin to surround ourselves with, they not only impact uh, the things that we do, but they begin to impact who we are, right? 
And so the people that we hang out with, the activities that we choose for ourselves begin to define our life. And all of a sudden, we, we start thinking of ourselves or people start thinking of us in ways other than follower of Jesus. You know? So I know a lot of things about Trey. Right? Like I know that Trey uh, does bonsai, which I think is like one of the coolest things in the world. I don't know how that happens. It does. Trees grow, and he shapes them, and it's cool. Um, <laughs> it's my limited understanding of bonsai. Um, I know Trey likes to fish. We were talking about his trout pillow in his office earlier. Um, I know Trey loves to read. Right? I know um, Trey and I have been out to eat a few times. I know he loves good coffee. But when I think of Trey, the thing that I think of first is the conversations that we've had about Jesus and his faith and his devotion to God. The thing that I think about second is his calling to ministry. When I think of Trey, I go, Trey, my, this is my friend Trey Gilmore. He's the pastor of Contrast Church. I don't go, this is my friend Trey Gilmore. He makes bonsai trees. <laughs> like I could, right? That is, a, that is a facet of who he is, but that's not the thing that's central to his life. So when you think about yourself and you think about the things that are central to your life, what is it that you identify with? Is it follower of Jesus? Or is it foodie? Is it he has really great shoes? Like, you know, it could, be, it could be anything, right? But if it's anything other than Jesus, that's where we begin to go off the path, right? You know, so the world says, look out for number one, right? And the word of God says that in humility, we're supposed to consider others of greater value than ourselves. You know, the world says that, that we should, in this life, acquire money and power and comfort. But God's word says that we should follow Jesus' example by serving the people around us. That whoever is last will become first in the kingdom. You know, the world says that you need to work hard to provide for yourself, Right? God's word says that, that we don't need to store up because God wants to provide for us. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes, look at, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air, right? They don't worry about stuff like that. God cares for them. Why don't you think he'll care for you because you're so much more valuable than those things? And so what oftentimes ends up happening is that what the world says and what God's word says are in total opposition to each other. And when we begin to live too much in the world... Um, sometimes we start to believe those lies. We start to live into those lies. So the question, I think, for us this morning is, is how much is too much, right? Like, where's the line? Um, it's a funny question because I, uh, I have this, this quote that resonates in the back of my head a lot. It's John D. Rockefeller, who at one point was the richest person in the world, and, and relatively speaking was the richest person in the, like, the history of the world for a long time. Um, dude owned many things. Um, and so there's this quote that's attributed to him, and I don't know if he actually said it or not, but history says that he did. And it goes like this. So a reporter said, Mr. Rockefeller, you know, you have all this wealth, right? You've, you've done so many things. You've acquired all these things. How much money is enough money? How much money is enough money? Like, at what point do you say this enough? And Rockefeller thought for a minute, and he said, just a little more. And it's this idea that, like, no matter how much we have, we always think, if I just had a little bit more, then I could whatever. Then I could buy a home. Then I could fix my car. Then I could retire comfortably. Then I could pay off my student loans. And then I'd be happy. And that's a lie. Scripture says that's a lie. It's in Ecclesiastes 5, 
verse 10, it says, you think, literally says, you think that if you have more money, it will solve your problems. It won't. Money will never fix your problems. It's interesting, right? Um, anyway, how much is enough? Uh, you know, we see Jesus interacting with the world in a lot of ways, right? And it doesn't um, defile him. He doesn't begin to identify with the world. Jesus' first miracle, he's turning water into wine at a wedding. After they've been drinking for a long time, Jesus makes more wine. And so you read that, and I'm not going to tell you how to read your Bible, but you read that, and you're like, Jesus was okay with them partying at this wedding. And they're like, yeah, I think that he was. Jesus hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with, with prostitutes. He hung out with people that the religious authorities looked at, and they were like, why would you spend your time with them? They're not worth your time. And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. Everyone is worth my time. Um, Jesus wasn't defiled by the world. But there were religious leaders that looked at him, Matthew 11. He said, man, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you said that he had a demon. I come eating and drinking, and you say that I'm a drunkard. So there were people that were looking at the, what Jesus was doing, and they were criticizing him for the time that he was spending with unbelieving people. We're supposed to have friends that don't know Jesus. You should spend time with people who don't know Jesus. Please spend time with people who don't know Jesus. Please be in the world, but not of the world. This is what Jesus says in John 17. He prays this for his disciples. He prays to God. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. And it created this sense that we talk about sometimes of being in the world, but not of the world. The idea of like this monastic life where you remove yourself from the world is not what Jesus necessarily had in mind for every believer. He said, I want you to be in the world because if you're not in the world, how are you going to impact the world around you? But Jesus prayed that God would protect us from temptation, from the evil one, from identifying with the world, from being of the world, from belonging to the world. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... So Peter looks at you and he goes, if your citizenship is in heaven, then your time on earth, you're living as a, a foreigner in exile. He says, to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among non-Christians. So that, this is, I like this translation. So that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. So you know what this is? This is people who say, well, you know, Christians are like X, Y, Z. And then they meet you and they're like, wait a minute, you're not like that. So if you're a Christian, maybe I need to reconsider that. I think that happens. And so there's this sense that we are supposed to be in the world but not corrupted by the world. Instead, there is this godly alternative that James talks about. So verse 7, it kind of pivots, right, in James chapter 4. Verse 7, he says, so submit to God. So instead of doing that, instead of being friends with the world, instead of quarreling amongst each other, instead of um, being so uh, desirous of what other people have that you murder them in your hearts, do this. Submit to God. And actually, if you do that, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And instead, you should draw near to God. Right? And when you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Make your hearts pure, you double-minded. James used really strong language. 
Um, I don't know that I would stand up here, Trey would stand up here now and say, you know, call you guys double-minded adulterers. James didn't shy away from it. Um, submitting to God. Uh, submitting, right? The idea of being submissive or, or being in submission to something else, I feel like that feels like a bad word because like, we are supposed to desire to be Lord over everything, and so submitting to somebody else kind of in our culture feels like not something that we should do. But, but you know, accepting or yielding to the authority of someone else is good when it's good, right? That can be bad when it's bad, but it's good when it's good. So let me give you some examples. So rebellion against a tyrant is heroic, right? You look at like the American Revolution, heroic, right? Uh, you look at resistance in Germany during World War II, heroic, right? My three-year-old telling me no as he's climbing the shelves of our pantry trying to get something off the top shelf and I tell him that's dangerous, that's not heroic. It just isn't. It's stupid, right? If I go, my, so our three-year-old, his name is Kai. If I say, Kai, you're going to hurt yourself touching the stove because you want to get your mac and cheese before it's ready, and he goes, no, I'm going to touch it, and reaches up and does it, that's not heroic. That's dumb. It's ignorant, right? Because he doesn't understand something that I understand. And so like rebellion, when it's rebellion against something bad, is a good thing. But submission, when it's in submission to a loving father who only ever always has our best interest in mind, then that's a good thing. If my kids never said no to me, now I'm not perfect, so I'd probably screw this up, but if my kids never said no to me, the overwhelming majority of the time, they'd get exactly what they want. Isn't that interesting to think about? But we say no to God so much. We choose what we want so often because we think that we know better. Guys, we don't know better. We don't. James talks about the fact that God is jealous for our affection. See, we, guys, if you don't know this, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, right? And this is a really big deal. The presence of God is a really cool concept in Scripture that you can unpack sometime. But for... for centuries of people following God, God's presence was in a singular place. It was in the temple. First it, well, first it was in the tabernacle and the ark, and then it was in the temple. And not everybody had access to the presence of God. The presence of God was a big, dangerous, exciting, powerful thing. And when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple tore, symbolizing that now God's presence was no longer restricted to one place, but it was available to everyone. And the Spirit came at Pentecost, and believers were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And now you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 6. And what Paul means is that when you move about in your day-to-day -day life, when you go into your office, or you go into stoffs, or you walk around, or you go to lunch, or you go to school, or wherever you go, you are bringing God's presence with you. A little mini temple of the Holy Spirit moving around, giving people access to God's presence all the time. And we know this to be true in our life, right? Because oftentimes we have those interactions with people where they're like, wow, you're so different. And I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, it's probably not actually you that is so different. Like on my worst day, I don't look a whole lot different than everybody else. 
But on my best day, where I'm drawing near to God, the way that I interact with people, the thing that overflows out of my life is God's grace and God's joy and God's love and God's mercy and God's compassion. And people get to experience a little piece of Jesus when they interact with me. That's what happens when you draw near to God. I love the idea of in Grandview as it is in heaven. Um, How does that happen? Well, when John announced the coming of Jesus, he said, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Why did he say that? There were people who thought that it meant that the the physical kingdom was about to happen, right? That Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans, and all of a sudden he was going to usher in God's kingdom on earth. But that's not what he meant. He meant the kingdom of God is at hand because of the coming of the king. So people got to experience a little bit of the kingdom of God because they got to know the king of the kingdom, right? Guys, you and I, when we walk around in our day-to-day life, we usher in the kingdom as we walk around because we bring with us the presence of the king. And so in Grandview as it is in heaven, like if you want to see what heaven will be like and if you want to create a Grandview that mirrors that or an office that mirrors that or a school that mirrors that or a family that mirrors that, then what they need is they need more of Jesus. You have the ability to influence that because you bring with you the presence of God. And so you can be different because you are different. And the difference in the way that you live your life begs that question of why. Why are you the way you are? And then you get to answer with the truth of God's word. How do we do this? We do it by drawing near to God. In humility, right? In humility, drawing near to God. And the application in this scripture is right there embedded in it because James tells us what we need to do, right? First, he tells us that we need to pray. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Just ask, right? But how do you ask? Ask in a way that's glorifying to God. You know, when Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, he doesn't just mean that at the end of your prayer, if you say, in Jesus' name, you'll get it. It's not like a weird little vending machine token that makes God work the way we want him to work. What Jesus means is that when we are in the will of God, when we understand what God wants for us, that then when we pray, we're praying and asking for the very things that God wants to give us. And so just like when my three-year-old comes and says, Dad, can I have, you know, whatever, I'm excited to give it to him if it's what's best for him. When he comes an hour before dinner and says, can I have 10 cookies, like then I'm going to say no, right? But I'm only going to say no because it's not good for him. Pray and ask, right? Pray boldly. You know, who are you praying for? Like, who are the people in your life that you think, gosh, I wish that they knew Jesus. Gosh, I wish that their life was different in the way that mine is different. Who in your family? Who in your workplace? Which of your neighbors? Like, do you guys have that, like, really grumpy neighbor who you're like, nothing will ever make that guy happy? I have several of them. Um, UA is an adventure. Um, what if he knew Jesus, right? Your coworkers, your friends, people on your team, right? What if they knew Jesus? Do you pray for them? How do you pray for them? What do you ask for? Um, who in your network is far from God? Who needs help? Pray. Pray boldly. Ask God. Um, but as you do that, right, how are we going to be praying in the will of God if we don't know what the will of God is? And how will we know what the will of God is if we're not listening? So the second thing is to listen. 
And how do we listen, right? Well, like I said, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our life is to speak into our life the will of God. When you pray, when you have time in the word, like when you're by yourself, on your own, do you create space to listen for God? Or are you constantly surrounded by noise? And I love worship music, love it. Like when Elena and Adam were up here earlier, um, that's awesome. That was awesome, I love that. But if I'm never in silence listening for God, it's really, really difficult to discern, God, to discern God's voice from the noise around us in our life. It's just tough. It's just tough. So what does it look like to create space to listen for God? And, and then can you recognize God's voice? There are a few voices in the world that I recognize immediately. Like if my mom calls me and I'm not like looking at my phone, I just pick it up and say hello, she doesn't have to say, hi, Andy, it's your mom. Sometimes she actually does because she's weird. Um, <laughs> It's like a thing with generations and how you treat phone calls. I don't know. Um, she'll go, hi, Andy. It's me, your mom. Uh, the second she says, hi, Andy, I know that it's my mom, right? There are like very few people like that that I immediately recognize their voice, but she's one of them. Why? Well, because I've heard her voice for 40 years. Over and over and over again. Every day I've heard her voice. And so if I'm in a crowded place, like, uh, so we're all going to get up in a couple minutes, and it's going to get really noisy in here, right? If you yell my voice in the noise, I might not even hear it, and I certainly wouldn't know who it was that yelled my voice. Um, if Lindsay, who I work with, yelled my voice, I might be like, oh, that's Lindsay, if I could hear her. If my mom was across the room and she said, hey, Andy, I would key in, like, almost immediately. We just do that. Are we able to do that with God's voice? Why or why not? Well, how often do you hear it, right? How often are you listening for it? Is it as familiar to you as the voice of people around you? And then lastly, just obey, right? Like when you hear God's voice, when you hear God speaking something into your life, do what he says. Trust that, and, and some of this is faith, right? But trust that God is more like me telling my son not to climb the shelves in the pantry, right, then he is like, I don't know, the king of England taxing tea, right? Like, it's not, it's not heroic to rebel against what God wants for your life. It just isn't. He knows better than we do. So, like, is there something that God is asking for you to do? Do you know that there's something that God is asking for you to do and you've just been kicking that can down the road because you're afraid? or because it will cost you something? Maybe not, but if you're not sure what God wants from you, ask, ask. How would your life be different this week if you obeyed fully everything that God asked you to do? I don't know, for me, like maybe I would spend my time differently. Maybe I would spend my money differently. Maybe I would prioritize different things. Maybe I would reach out to people that I, God wants me to talk to that I'm afraid to reach out to. Maybe I'd have some hard conversations with people that I'm afraid to have. I don't know. I think not everything in Scripture is entirely prescriptive, right? Like we read things in the Old Testament and it's not speaking directly to us saying that we should not wear shirts that are, you know, tri-blend. Um, but the book of James, it does a really good job of being prescriptive and telling us how to live our life. And Hannah mentioned it last week. Like sometimes you just want to open the word and be like, just do this. This is what God wants. Just do it right? 
I feel like this is kind of one of those times. So think about what this looks like for you this week. Um, thank you guys for having me. I'm going to pray as the band's going to come forward, and then we're going to enter into uh, it's a time of formation. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that, uh, that you are good and you are glorious and you have in mind our best interests. Thank you that trusting you is the best thing for us. God, I pray, I pray that we wouldn't desire things of this world more than we desire you. God, help us. Help us to want more of you. Help us to listen for and know and hear your voice. And give us the strength to do what it says. God, I thank you that you don't desire more from us than we can give you. I thank you that you did what it took to win us to yourself. And so everything we do, we get to do out of an overflow of love and thanksgiving to you. God, we do love you. Thank you for all of the ways that you bless us every day, for all of the ways that you provide for us. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the blessings that are ours in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.